Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Ash Smith. I'm from uh, Windrush Against Sewage Pollution, which is what it sounds like it might be. And our uh, objectives are to stop the dumping of untreated sewage, to improve the quality of effluent going in, and to make our rivers safe for all. It's all about unity. It's all about bringing people together. It wasn't about fish. It wasn't about any kind of river. We say if you've got a, a short stream or a little ditch somewhere, if you put clean water in it, it'll be good. The stuff will live in it and it will grow. If we just separate things off and say, well, okay, we'll just trade it all for protecting limestone rivers, which is what we've got, or chalk streams, then our enemy, and we have plenty of friends in the water industry, but the water industry will divide us. They're very good at dividing us. They're very good at capturing regulators. They're very good at capturing government, and they're very good at capturing NGOs and getting them to do what they want. So... We've had a lot of really great talks today, people coming from all different angles. The important thing for me is that we all remember that we're on the same side and that we're all concentrating on what we all believe in, the things that unite us rather than the things that can very easily divide us. Let's not worry about them until we've won. I've got four people to introduce to now get really into the, into the detail. And we found the devil is always in the detail. 
So I'm going to introduce John, well, living landscape manager. Who knew there was such a thing? That's great. For the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, working in East Yorkshire in the rolling hills, short hills of Yorkshire Wilds and the short streams that come out of it. So John's going to talk about that, about the landscape and the challenges and opportunities that lie therein. John. I'm going to try hard to focus on my talk because actually all the talks I've gone for have set my brain whirring and I'm saying, oh, I could talk about that, I could link up with that, but no, I'm going to try and focus very much on what's in front of me on the slides. Um, and there's lots of crossover in what's been said. I'll come on to my job title in, within the slides. Um, so the first slide is uh, the rivers, but this is a, a Yorkshire-based rivers network. And you'll see that the river systems that are linked to the chalk, or the main river systems linked to the chalk, the river Hull, is isolated by the chalk of the Yorkshire Wolds. And as Amy mentioned in her talk, the little watercourse to Gypsy Race is here. All the other Yorkshire rivers are linked through the Humber Estuary at Goul, and the Humber Estuary obviously is that huge link out to the North Sea, and you'll see why I mention that in the talk I'm just going to whiz through. I thought I'd also put some local context on the chalk streams, so you'll hopefully see on the map we've got the chalk geology here running down in this lovely curve, we've got the River Hull here running down to the city of Hull, and then you've got these streams, and I've coloured the dark blue as ones that are classified as chalk streams. So, for example, this is a, a canal, leaving canal. And down here in Holderness, you're onto the clay, so you've not really got the chalk as influential on these watercourses. The chalk is still here under the clay, but it's not got the same influence as these, which round here people know as the Riverhall headwaters. But all these little scarp streams, as we call them, coming off the west scarp of the walls, they're actually mainly flowing into the Derwent Caps, which then comes round down into the Humber. Apart from a couple of them that are running straight down towards the Derwent, and the Gypsy Race, which is flowing out directly out to the North Sea. So that's our chalk and our chalk streams. Um, I'm going to take you on a picture view now of that landscape. Even in Yorkshire, when you say to people in Yorkshire, and I'm from Yorkshire, born and bred, and you say, can you talk about the Yorkshire landscapes? North York Moors, Dales, Peak Districts in South Yorkshire, the bridge between South and Derbyshire. East Yorkshire, there's not a lot of sort of thought around the Yorkshire landscape in terms of East Yorkshire. So I've been bashing around East Yorkshire for 20 years in my role as a Living Landscapes Manager, promoting what East Yorkshire is about. And you'll see from the pictures, we've got some pretty good landscape features and some good habitats. So I'm going to start at the coast. That's Flamborough Cliffs. Some of you may have heard of the seabird colonies on the chalk cliffs of um, East Yorkshire. This is where it's at. Just north of Flamborough Cliffs is the RSPB Reserve Benton Cliffs, where you've got the breeding seabirds of the gannets and the guillemots and the raisbills. And they come down the coast onto this area as well. Here you've got more puffins, and we actually own some of the land. The Yorkshire Wildlife Trust owns some of the land at Flamborough. I love this picture because it just shows people that the chalk doesn't stop at the cliff, it goes into the sea. And we've got um, at least one person here from across the North Sea. It reappears across the other side of the North Sea. And that landscape link, which you'll hear repeated in my talk, I work at scale from an individual farm where it might be just a pond right through to our landscape. And I think about my landscape, not only about Yorkshire landscape, but about the chalk that goes across the North Sea. It goes down through the country, goes across to 
line in France. If you're ever driving across there, it struck me when it all clicked into place. The road signs, Cap Blanc Ney, Cap Green A, the Grey Nose, the Granite, the Chalk. So that landscape link names will come up in my talk as well. So that's where we're starting. That's a more typical view of the Yorkshire Wolds. The wildflower meadow in the foreground is one of our nature reserves. It's a relic of what used to be really common on the chalk walls um, and has been lost, lost to changes in land use. That's more typical in the background, the rolling slopes with the arable farmland. But actually, if you go back in past history, sheep were a really important landscape feature or important in the agricultural landscape back in the day. And interestingly, I haven't got a slide, but sheep are playing a more important role again now on the upper slopes because of the rising cost of artificial fertilisers. So actually farms are putting more sheep back on the landscape. So we are getting this reversal of what's happening. Cyclical changes do actually happen quite often. Um, and that's a message I talk to a lot of farmers about. That's a more typical view of the Yorkshire Wolds. Highly, highly productive, dominated by arable farming, but actually has lots of opportunities in there, very scattered in terms of population. It's one of the lowest population densities in the UK, the Yorkshire Wells. Lots of small villages, doesn't have the same pressures. So our chalk streams, I'll get on to in a minute, don't have the same pressures in terms of over abstraction. The only main place that water is being taken to produce for drinking water is the city of Hull downstream. But we have some of the same issues creeping in and I am obviously working at different scales, and one of them is with the regulators and companies like Yorkshire Water to say, we do have some brilliant chalk streams. Do not let it get like what's happening down in some of the south southern chalk streams. So that is lots of lovely pictures of chalk streams. That's one of our main chalk streams in East Yorkshire. That's known as the West Beck, but it actually also upstream one of the quirks of our areas they name it based on different places but it's all the same water just upstream you've got its name as driffield beck driffield trout stream then it becomes east burnbeck south burnbeck the northern arm changes its name on county parish boundaries so it starts in north roddingham beck then it becomes foston beck then it becomes kelp beck then it becomes lothorpe beck it's all the same water across the parish boundary and the name changes and quirk of yorkshire folk um, but as you can see um, that's a fairly typical view. Uh, that's a pretty iconic bridge that people refer to. That's the Wandsford Bridge, it's a small village outside the mouth of town of Driffield. We actually managed to purchase um, a mile and a half of this section of the West Beck when we actually took a commercial fish farm out of production. It was an active commercial fish farm, still profitable. The wildlife just took a massive leap of faith. We bought it 10 years ago and turned it from a commercial fish farm into a nature reserve. And this is part of the stream that we actually have in our ownership and custodianship or guardianship. Um, so that was one of the things that I picked up about in the previous talks. I'm also going to talk quickly about one or two others and names as well. I just love some of the names that we've given our chalk streams. It's probably the same wherever you are, but this is the brilliantly name. This is my favourite name of the chalk streams. This is Crunk Hill Spring. <laughs> I just love Crunk Hill. It just, it's an amazing sort of um, little spring. Um, it flows literally out of that arch coming out of the hillside. It is winterborne, it does dry up because um, uh, it's right on the edge of the scarp slope. So actually the, the springs do push further down the stream bed in low flows. We've also got mentioned earlier by Amy, the gypsy race. The etymology of that is a little bit questionable in terms of 
Some people think it refers to the Greek word thros. Other people say it's actually a reference to the fact it's a winter born, so the water comes and goes, as travellers did. Gypsies moved around the countryside, so there's, there's different suggestions. This next one, this is another small tributary stream up around the headwaters of the River Hull, just to the north of the West Beck. And this actually flows into another sort of water body, which is a, a natural water body, and there's several of them in the area known as the Kelds. And the word, word Kelder is a Norse word for spring. And we've got these references to the Kelder in our part of the world as well. So we, there's a Keld just down this little stream running through some wet woodland. There's an actual tiny little reserve we, we managed down near Beverly called Keld Marsh, which actually has pretty much stopped um, working in terms of its springs due to housing surrounding all of it. So that's an example of where things haven't gone well. Um, so, yeah, words and names and places are actually really important to me in this sort of conversation. And then the final slide is just to link us back to the Humber to say that the chalk does flow down, the chalk landscape flows down to the Humber and also underneath the Humber and reappears as the Lincolnshire Walls and down into this part of the world. So it's creating those landscape links. Um, part of what I do is actually about how do we create opportunities for wildlife to benefit in that landscape? How do we build it at scale, both from the field scale right the way through to landscape scale? And the way I had to think about it is to actually recognise and understand that everybody uses the landscape differently and interacts with that landscape differently. Not everybody is a passionate conservationist like me. Wish they were, but they're not. That's the reality. Not to say that some of these other sectors I'm just about to show aren't interested, and it's about finding that common ground, that commonality, and how, how we can make it work. So I've talked about the farming. Farming is a very, very important sector in our part of the country. As I, I'm sure many of you realise around here, you know, farming has a, a big, big place in that landscape for good or bad. And we need to recognise that and actually work with that to make positive change. Also in our part of the world, there is actually a massive, massive shellfish industry off that coast of Flamborough. It's one of the biggest in Europe. Lobsters and crabs, massive, massive economic activity. So actually it's recognising that when we're talking around managing landscapes and managing landscapes from an, an environmental point of view. And we talked about the sort of well-being, the health side of things, and the recreation. You know, the, the fact that people go out and enjoy the landscape. The Yorkshire Wilds Way is a national trail. It's probably one of the least visited national trails in the country. So it's, again, recognising the other users. I've got more and more interested over time in that sort of heritage and history and the fact that landscapes change and have long, long pasts in terms of human activity. Again, Amy mentioned the barrow at Duggleby Howe. Well, that is Duggleby Howe, the barrow, at, um, just literally next to Gypsy Race. It's within about 200 metres of the springs and the stream. And that was obviously put there for similar reasons to the Rudston monolith. And then coming forward in time, you've got that landscape change again. This, this was a cow buyer, you know, where cows would be brought in off the pasture up on the high walls. Cows and sheep disappeared from that landscape when arable farming became more profitable. That is now just some really, really stunning old farm buildings that are just sitting there. At the moment, they're too isolated to consider something to holiday accommodation or anything, but that landowner obviously recognises there's a landscape link there, there's a change in the landscape, there's a story there. And obviously, fairly obviously, water has this vital link with everything and anything that happens in that landscape, whether it's farming, whether it's just going and visiting an area for bird watching, whether it's actually needing it for drinking water, which was mentioned earlier about that we 
We just think he comes out of the tap quite often and forget about forget about the linkage. We use water in weird ways, you know, making our lawn look lovely and green in the summer. It does mind not. So anyway. <laughs> and then we've also got this sort of dual possible scenario of are we going to have too much water at the wrong time? This is Hull in 2007, one of the worst affected cities mm -hmm. in the country when the floods hit in 2007. Or are we going to end up with more of this? Which obviously we know the consequences of no water. So I spend time working at different landscapes, both the river landscape, but I spent a lot of time doing restoration work, short stream works, and focusing on the landowners around that landscape. If I want to capture the people who can and do influence the landscape that influences the short stream, you go up to dry land, you go up onto the walls, there's no water at the surface. How do you engage an audience that really does have no link to chalk streams? If I go and talk to them about chalk streams, they glaze over. They don't have a point of reference. So you need to find a point of reference, and that's what I've done with my role a lot. Find a point of reference that engages them. And it might be something that I have a lot of knowledge about initially. This is a really good example. We knew that dew ponds were there. Most of them have been lost because these were for sheep and cattle for drinking. That changed. Potted water came in, and these all became into disrepair. So we ran this program up on the walls to engage not only the landowners but about a habitat feature from an environmental point of view, which is what these are now put in for, but also about that connection with water. And this is a dew pond. You can see where it used to be. That's now lost. So what we're doing is using the old techniques. We're using the old-fashioned way of doing it with lime mortar and clay and straw, no plastic liners. That is the chalk stream restored. That is water crowfoot, a pond water crowfoot. That hasn't flowered and been there for all that time that pond was left with grass over it. So that's still there, waiting to recover. And the added benefit is, so they're amazed at the farms this happens, and then the added benefit is, on the walls, to get the picture in the middle, that's not particularly relevant to the dew ponds, but all these other ones on the outside, that is pond water crowfoot from that very pond. The amphibians come back in their droves really quickly and the farmers are amazed. Wow, look at that. Never seen tadpoles up here for years. You've got the dragonflies coming in and the aquatic invertebrates arriving. You farm them birds, which farmers are well aware of. And even mammals that, you know, need a drink. So it's creating <laughs> that message. To finish off, we actually needed to try and find a tag and through the catchment partnership, which the Wildlife Trust hosts and I chair, I needed to come up with something that actually does what it actually means. So we came with the deliberately corny, but deliberately, once you've heard it, you'll not forget it. Sorry. You all leave here with this. <laughs> <head>. Torture. Our program works around the landscape, the chalk landscape, whether it's the chalk streams, individual dew ponds, or the wider landscape we're trying to work on comes under the banner of Chalker. It brings the funding in different pro projects and programmes. And we just use that mantra about learning from the past, questioning the present, and shaping the future. Thank you. That will be up, John. Excellent. So next, I'm going to introduce Kate Heppel, Professor of Physical Geography at Queen Mary University, London. Currently seconded to the Children Chalk Streams project. Yeah to lead water quality work on the River Chess, part of the Chess Smarter Water Catchments Initiative, funded by 
I'm going to say it, Thames Water. <laughs> and uh, Kate has over 20 years experience of working on, on linkages between water quality, water quantity and habitat in the chalk streams of England. Hey, Hebel. Okay, I'm going to be talking about a partnership project between a number of different um, organisations, and you can see the logos down down there. But um, there are water companies involved, Thames Water, which is providing the funding, Affinity Water. Uh, but the hosts of the programme are River Chess Association, so uh, a, a river interest group, lobby group, and the Chiltern Chalk Streams Project, which is a partnership project linked to the Conservation Board, um, which is responsible for the area of outstanding natural beauty in the Chilterns. We're also working as part of a partnership with Buckinghamshire Council and Hearts of Middlesex Library Trust. So a whole group of different organisations working together. So I'm going to be presenting work that's not just my work, it's work of all of the different partners. So where is the River Chess? It's to the northwest of London. It flows from the Chilterns area of outstanding natural beauty through Buckinghamshire, through Hertfordshire, down to the River Colne, which ultimately then flows out into the Thames. There are lovely natural springs and artesian wells, and we've seen a few photographs of artesian wells earlier on in the talk, but there's a photograph there to the right of one of the artesian wells in Chesham. So uh, like many chalk streams, there are springs along the length of the river and also artesian wells. In terms of the land use, so this is a, a, important to have in mind as we go through the talk, um, the land cover is 12% urban. The river rises in Chesham, which is an urban area, flows through sort of semi-rural area and then out to the Colne again at Rittmansworth, which is urban again. So this real mix of urban influences and a high population. Chesham Sewage Treatment Works, which is the yellow square you can see between the two, two red dots, which are our sensors. That's a sewage treatment works with a population equivalent of 37,300 and there's a much smaller second sewage treatment works called Cheney's, but it's Cheshire that has the main influence on the river Chess. There's a lot of groundwater abstraction for drinking water supply in the area as well, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. So there are pressures on this area from urban land use and from the water cycle infrastructure, just as there are for many of our chalk streams. The Smarter Water Catchment Initiative itself is a Thames Water Pilot Project, which with the idea of bringing partners together to work uh, to improve the health of a river system. The Chess is part of three different rivers part of this pilot programme, the Evenload, which is more rural, the Chess um, and the Crane as well, which is in, in London. I wanted to point this out in terms of the three million pounds of investment that's going into this, which is funding all of the different partners and people working on the projects. And we've got, for example, farming officers working to improve the health of the catchments, part of this project. We have citizen science coordinators as well and education officers. So what does this mean in practice? The partners, led by Chilton's Port Streams Project and the River Chess Association, have got together and created a 10-year plan for the river, which aims to restore the health of the chess. And there are a number of themes. Well, my specialism is water quality, so what I'm going to be talking to you about today is very much about water quality aspects. We're also looking at managing flow, looking at controlling invasive non-native species, river restoration projects as well to improve wildlife corridors, and then there are elements of how we work best together in partnership as well moving forward. So like um, many of our chalk streams, the challenges are all about uh, improving flow, healthy flows, improving the good water quality and improving the habitat of the river as well. So those three things combined together are critical. As I say, I'm going to focus more on the water quality, but don't think that there aren't other activities going on as well in the river that are related to these other, other schemes. So I took as a starting point when I started, I did a baseline assessment of where we were with the chess and took the water framework directive as the best indication that we have, not perfect at all by any means, but the best indication we have uh, of the health of the chess from the start chemically. 
So as of 2019, it's got moderate overall ecological status and failed like all uh, English rivers did for the chemical status. And the hydrological regime of the river doesn't support this status. So that was a sort of starting point of, of where we are. And then we started drilling down into that data set as part of the, the program. So in terms of challenging, the river flow in the chest reflect long-term over abstraction, but they also reflect patterns in rainfall as well. So I just wanted to, to show you that because I find this, I'm a hydrologist with biogeochemistry, I find this fascinating. You look at the top graph there, that's um, basically a kind of visualization of um, below average and above average rainfall. So the blue bits, you can see where we've had above average rainfall, the red bits below average rainfall. Um, and you can see 1980s, we sort of had quite a lot of just above average rainfall. So when I was young and I remember the rivers flowing, that was during a period of above average rainfall. And then as we go through 2000 to 2020, we've got periods of above average and then we've got drought periods as well. And one of the worrying things on the chest is if you see the bottom line, which is the discharge, which is measured down at Rickmansworth, you can see, um, you know, uh, lower discharge 20. 2020 on the river chest and one of the things we've been asking is why is that is that a pattern of over abstraction is it a pattern due to rainfall uh, what is going on here um, and certainly from my perspective um, with regards to climate change we've got some worrying indicators ahead in the Chilterns for example we know that we've seen the same the, the first observations of groundwater levels decreasing as a result of climate change. So groundwater recharge um, is not happening to the same extent as it was. That's being driven by rainfall, but it's also being driven by higher temperatures as well. So this leads me to sort of think about, well, what is the future for this river in terms of, of flows? We need to be thinking about climate change and thinking into the future, as well as tackling um, over abstraction as well. For those of you who don't like graphs, there's a heat map here, same thing, it's the discharge. Just notice the darker red colours are all sort of stacked 2000 to 2020 onwards, and those are the periods of lower flow within the river. So over abstraction and changes in rainfall patterns and changes in temperature are all, to my mind, critical threats to the, to the river chest and to flows in the river chest. There are opportunities under AMP7, there are abstraction reductions happening. So we've had a reduction in 7.27 megalitres per day in area, for example. And I think Charles will probably be talking about chalk streams first, will you, Charles? Yeah, probably. Yeah, so I won't go into that, but that's another thing that's happening. We have ephemeral sections on the river chest, just like many other chalk streams with the Winterbourne um, sections and many concerns about that migration of Winterbourne sections downstream in response to over-abstraction. But also, I think there are opportunities there for all of us to understand more the value as well of winterbourne sections where they should be in chalk streams and actually valuing dry phases as well as, as wet phases and talking to the public about that. They're very biodiverse, these rivers, because of these changes from aquatic to terrestrial habitats as well and something perhaps we don't, we don't think enough about. In terms of chemical status... I wanted to put this up because this highlights the chest's good dissolved oxygen or high dissolved oxygen status and poor uh, phosphate status. Those are the two things to keep in mind. Um, and one of the things that we, uh, when the River Chest Association started hosting um, Smart Water Catchments Initiative, it was on the basis of uh, seeing evidence of storm tank overflows and sewage getting into the river chest. So we questioned the dissolved oxygen status of the chest and wanted to put in sensors to track that dissolved oxygen status. And we put those in 
prior to Tsunata Water Catchment's programme starting, uh, we called the initiative Chess Watch to put sensors into the river to try and track the odd oxygen status. So from 2019 onwards, you may know that there was more rainfall. We switched from below average rainfall in England to above average in the southeast. And what happened then was that groundwater levels rose. So the peach panels on these graphs are periods of time during which storm tank overflow was occurring into the chest. So this is raw, untreated sewage getting into the river chest because the storm tank capacity is exceeded. It was happening um, in response to high intensity rainfall events but also for prolonged period of time. So you can see those two periods of stronger peach panels or longer peach panels are as a result of groundwater infiltrating into the sewer network. Um, and then when the groundwater levels were high, the sewers uh, were carrying that groundwater to the sewage treatment works and the capacity of the storm tanks were being overwhelmed. Our sensor data enabled us to show an influence on dissolved oxygen status in the river downstream of the sewage treatment works. So we see then um, that although this uh, it was argued that this was groundwater and therefore wasn't going to be so problematic for the river, we could argue that the dissolved oxygen systems were showing us that there was a, a decline in oxygen status, support status. Also in May 2020, showing an increase in the amplitude of dissolved oxygen, so variation. That amplitude um, is indicative of algal blooms, for example, in the river as well, increased um, amount of algae there. So we were able to show then that we had an issue from groundwater ingress and the intense rainfall could also cause transient drops in dissolved oxygen levels. But the data doesn't and the census don't allow us to know levels of phosphate, bacteria and viruses, for example, in the water due to storm tank discharges. So although dissolved oxygen status is high, according to the Water Framework Directive, this is also going on in the river. And this is being shown by 15 minute monitoring data, not by sort of monthly grab samples. We were also then able to combine that data with really long-term river fly data. So we've had citizen scientists, enthusiasts on the river for 10 years now monitoring river fly. And that's a great thing that the River Chess Association and the Children's Chalk Streams Project started a long time ago. And so we also are able to look at that data in relation to what we know about the storm tank overflows. So the peach panels again are when we know storm tank overflows were occurring. The latter two here nearer to me because of the, our sensors. The earlier are observations from local rivers groups. And you can see the bottom uh, graph there shows you blue winged olive scores from the Army River Fly and shows you that those years when the storm tank overflows were occurring, we get much lower numbers of blue winged olives. So this is our first attempt to join together flow data, oxygen data, and look at river fly data and citizen science data in the river as well. Another challenge to the chess is phosphate concentrations. Phosphate, I said, was poor status due to Cheshire sewage treatment works. The challenge, 96% of the phosphorus currently originates from treated effluent entering the river from Cheshire sewage treatment works. In AMP 7, under the current five-year water uh, company cycle, there's a permit change required by the Environment Agency to reduce that effluent from 2 to 0.25 milligrams of phosphorus per litre by 2024. What we're seeing at the moment are, uh, is filamentous algal growth in the river. You can see this on the, on the right. These kind of stretches are exceeding 20 degrees centigrade now in summer, uh, in summer heat waves. We've seen that with our sensors. So well, who knows what the future is with these kind of phosphate levels plus these increased temperatures as a result of, of heat waves as well. So really important to be thinking about the future of that. Despite the permit change, the permit change um, 
We'll, um, we'll take the phosphate load to 75% in the river, we'll be from the sewage treatment works, but then the river test is only predicted to reach moderate phosphorus status, not below the ecologically relevant threshold concentrations. So I think climate change scenarios combined with this leads us to think, well, there's much more to be done in this regard um, for phosphate anyway in the systems, and we have to think about how we can do that. At the moment, it's considered not to be technically achievable to take the chest uh, below these levels through action of the sewage treatment works. Now, I said there's urban runoff in the, in the chest or urban areas in the chest, and that's leading to uh, urban runoff. Um, and that brings with it fine sediment. And fine sediment is an issue I don't think we've touched on so much uh, in the conference yet, but a really important uh, chemical parameter to think about, not measured as part of the Water Framework Directive, so really poor database for this. We don't know the proportion of different sources uh, in the test, whether it's coming from urban runoff, agricultural runoff and banks. We have started analysing it. We know that polyaromatic hydrocarbons from burning of fossil fuels exceeds United States EPA predicted effect concentrations. And so there are opportunities that the Water Catchments Initiative has given us. We're doing partnership working to measure sediment through sensors to do sediment source apportionment um, and to spatially map the risk from fine sediment getting into the river from farming activities as well. And our farming officer is working with farming communities. We're trialling Mud Spotter, which is helping us with looking at where uh, sediment is coming into the river. So our citizen scientists are going out and noting where all of the um, overland flow from rivers and culverts and pipes are leading to the fine sediment problem. We've got our sensors working in the river as well. We can look at dissolved oxygen changes fine sediment changes and ammonium increasing um, as a result of that. And now we're combining that with smart rivers from wildfish as well to tell us what the pressures are on the river system and finding, I won't go through this in detail, but finding that the chemical pressures are higher in the upper parts of the river in our urban reaches. One of the final things before I finish is that we're also then doing monitoring of contaminants of emerging concern. So these are contaminants that are outside the current regulatory system that we think might be causing problems. And our, and our citizen scientists are going out taking grab samples. We've got passive samplers in the river to analyse um, 200 chemicals for concentration and 2,500 uh, other chemicals for presence and absence. And our pilot study certainly showed the influence of the sewage treatment work on the total concentration of these uh, chemicals in the, in the river system. But we also look at risk quotients, not just concentrations. And really early results are showing not high risk from these, but they are present and there are a multitude of different chemicals present. So what are our critical challenges? Low flows, which are leading to water quality challenges, a lack of dilution, little sediment entrainment, so the sediment's not being moved through the system. Fine sediment falls outside the Water Framework Directive. There's a poor evidence base for that. We're relying on water quality standards from other countries. We've got storm tank overflows happening. We've not got the best available technology. We'll only take the phosphorus to moderate status when we have that in place on the chest. We're getting water temperature increases uh, exceeding 20 degrees. Um, and we don't know the full challenge of our emerging contaminants yet. But the opportunities. We're working together. The Small Water Catchments Project has enabled us to now really understand what those challenges are to our river, to do all of this science, to start to work together on the mitigation actions. And they're in place as well. We're starting to work with farming communities. We're working with the local authorities on SUDS, for example. But developing any form of trust between partners and an effective network needs time and needs funding. It needs more than five years. Inside the, the toolkits we're getting through, like the Wild Fish Smart Rivers tool, are empowering local groups with new knowledge. 
And the partnership approach is getting is gaining traction. But there's one thing I need to say is that it needs input from local authorities and organisations like National Highways who don't engage with us at all to tackle urban runoff. Tackling urban runoff needs agreement on ownership of SUDS features and it needs their maintenance considered as well as the capital investment. And for me, in our tool streams that are in Earth flowing through urban areas, these are critical points that we haven't really got going on yet and need to get finished there. Rob, next. Rob Devon, the Wildcat Trust Conservation Officer for the Eastern Region. That takes in the chalk belt, the Chilterns, North Hertfordshire, comes up through Cambridgeshire and into Norfolk. Rob's home patch is South Cambridgeshire, so he's drawing on local examples today. I don't know what this means, but there might be some grumbles along the way, so that's intriguing. But at the end, uh, it will end on a highlight. So here we go. Rob. <laughs> Good afternoon. First of all, introduced to you to a couple of Cambridge-born and bred trout. They are from the Vickers Brook here in the heart of Cambridge. We have the potential to breed and sustain trout, but they're very vulnerable to water quality. Those that don't know the Wild Trout Trust, we are a UK-based charity. But we try to work from the bottom up to inspire people from conservation groups, anglers, community groups to work and cherish and understand how they can be effective take forward restoration and habitat improvements on their own rivers. That's me in the River Colne recently with a gang of people from Groundwork. So, to the granter, the lost river, how bad did it have to get? It get so bad that Joe Crowley from The One Show came out to film me. We had lost 29 kilometres of that river. Well, it was flowing at the top end, and I'll say why next. But that is a sorry state. And what that picture did, and that visit, and that publicity, that motivated the Coalition of Care. There's now, if you count, about 20 river-focused conservation groups in the Cambridge area. There's a lot of people that want to make a difference, and it's trying to give those people leadership, which is part of the challenge. The River Granta in the drought of 2019 was flowing at the top end, because here in the Cambridge area, we keep our rivers flowing in droughts using pumped water. It is unsustainable. It's not something I like. You can see there, RSPB Falmere, the crest bed, left the picture, completely dry. The River Shep would not be flowing if it wasn't for that pumped water. Neither would the River Mel, neither would parts of the Wilburn River system, neither would the Fullbourne, neither would the load system. But the challenge is the water companies use about 20% of the water they abstract from the aquifer to try and offset the harm. The problem here is they've known about that for 40 years. That system was set up after the drought of 76. That was set up to mitigate, not to completely ameliorate the problems of drought. So as our abstraction has become more and more intensified, the problems of drought have become more and more magnified to the point where some of this water augmentation system simply does not work. The River Mel pump is sometimes turned off because they're trying to flow poor water down a sponge that's already dry. If you haven't got water beneath the chalk river, it can't keep itself flowing. And here, at the top end of the granter, water's pumped in, but sometimes that pump fails. That pump might fail due to a power cut. It might fail to mechanical burnout. It might fail due to somebody breaking that pipe network. And when it breaks and fails, you end up with dead fish. The rivers go dry. That's why I found these adult trout there last summer, a very sorry state. But I put it to you, 
if we did not have that flow augmentation scheme, we wouldn't be sat in this room today talking about Cambridge and its chalk streams. We would have lost them in the droughts of the 1990s. So we're stuck in this unsustainable situation at present. But how bad do our rivers have to get? Are they able to recover from the last drought? And I'm starting to think now that with repeated drought years, our fish populations are not recovering. If you're an adult drought trying to swim, trout trying to swim in the small and declining river Shep on the left there, with habitat features high and dry, how do you escape from an otter if you're a large foot-long trout with only a few inches of water to cover your back? Then if we undertake restoration work, like on the River Mel, where we've got beautiful chalk gravels again, water crowfoot, after restoration work, but maybe that restoration work has come too late. I can't find adult fish in that Rita River anymore. There's still good spawning populations downstream, but we're ending up with the headwaters being disconnected from the main rivers. We need that continuity. We need barriers to be removed and fish populations are able to naturally recolonize headwater streams. With less flow, last speaker touched upon the silt. This is the river granter becoming silted up. You can see a flow deflector there in the back of the picture. It's got no flow to deflect. <laughs> and what's made worse is probably the majority of that flow is coming from sewage outfalls. So we have diminishing flow topped up by effluents and that ends up with a riverbed being smothered in silt. But there are some things that benefit. Mayflies, we're told that mayflies need good water quality, so everything must be all right, surely. No, it's not. Silted up rivers, less space for stone loach, less space for bullhead. Those two fish species are really important prey items for otters. Otters are much more likely to turn over stones and find these small fish than they are to chase fast-moving trout around a large river. So we need rivers to be clean of silt generally. As our rivers become smaller, those barriers that we have in our rivers become magnified. That step there, you see, on the River Ree between Foxton and Barrington, when I was younger, the river used to come gushing out from that bridge. There was no need for a fish pass. Fish could power up that river and get over that barrier. Remember, fish don't want to jump. Fish swim. They only jump as a last resort, and dace won't jump at all. And the problem is, everything's all right in normal flow, but we don't seem to get normal flows anymore. This is the hydrological data taken from February of this year. Yes, it was one of the driest years, but yes, we had some rain charge back for recharge due to high rainfall in October, November, and December. But the poor old River Ree is still on 47% of its long-term average. The River Cam there is on 61% of its long-term average. That's not very good. It's very worrying. Our flows are diminishing year upon year. We don't seem to get back to normal anymore. And I'll put this to you. I used to fish for chub at this point in the River Cam, just downstream of Hawkston. I wouldn't catch them on dry gravel. But remember, everything could be all right here. We've got good water quality, the sustaining mayflies and brown trout. We've got marginal vegetation. And we've got trailing trees. That's all kind of things you need for good habitat. So, you know, maybe we just have to accept our rivers becoming smaller of every generation. So maybe we shouldn't call it the CAM anymore. Perhaps it should be the CAM stream. Miniaturize it down a little bit more, the CAM brook. Maybe it'll become the CAM rivulet. I really hope it never becomes the CAM. The CAM at Hawkson should never become a winterbourne or an ephemeral stream. But the danger is our water company abstracts 
50, this stat is taken from the National Chalk Stream Restoration Strategy. 52% of the effective rainfall that bring out for recharge is abstracted from the river. But things could get worse because they're only abstracting around 50% of their total license volume. That is a really worrying statistic. And we've got to wait until, was it 2040, before our new reservoir becomes effective? That's why it's so important that community groups can act at the grassroots level to sustain these species and try and hold on to what we've got. This picture, when I saw this and took this September last year, generally shocked me. That's one of the biggest sluices in the heart of Cambridge. King sluice, not flowing. Where has the River Cam gone? That was the River Cam. Okay, there's a little bit comes down Slob Stream and a little bit down the Rush Fish Pass. That was the mill site. That should be powerful enough to drive mills. That takes the whole of the flow from the River Granta on the Cambridge Suffolk border, from the River Cam on the Essex Cambridgeshire border, from the River Ree from the Hertfordshire Cambridgeshire border, from the Bourne Brook on the Bedfordshire Cambridgeshire border. Where's our water gone? It's been used for public supply. I don't believe it's all climate change. And the problem is, when we have less flow, we get fish shoaling. These fish are trying to breathe. They're trying to find oxygenated water. It might attract tourists. People look down and say, oh, there's lots of fish there. Look at them. But I know those fish are not happy. They weren't gulping, thank goodness. But they're all gathered in what little flow was forming that part of the camp. I've gone to another grumble now. It gets better at the end, I promise you. <laughs> Excuse the blurry picture, but it's rather hard to, to creep up on a herd of 70 plus deer. These deer take sanctuary in Falmy Nature Reserve because people can't go there with dogs. So they gather up, they eat lots of vegetation, they nibble the trees. We need those willow trees to hold the soft banks together. Those willow trees start to become lopsided. Those deer are roaming around our countryside like an uncontrollable herd of cows. Those deer cross the small river Shep. I counted at least 25 river crossings in around 800 metres. You might say, what does one crossing matter? Well, it matters to me because this was a trout spawning area. Those deer are using some of the riffle habitats that I've created as their shallow fording areas. And every time they cross, especially when the rut season gets and the bucks get rather active and chucks <laughs> around, they just put in huge amounts of fine sediment. That fine sediment chokes the gravels, reduces the areas for trout to spawn on, reduces the areas for aquatic invertebrates to live in amongst. And it can feel like an unending cycle at times, because the problem is, even if you try and block off one of those crossings, like the RSPB had done here, they're a wild animal. They take their own routes. They go another direction. They will go where they want to go. So um, we're up against it. And what it means is that we have a crossing about every 30 metres, a high input of fine sediment every 30 metres. If I was on an advisory visit and someone had a herd of cows in the river, I'd be asking that landowner to fence their river. We can't fence the river against this herd of deer. The deer have become so numerous. And I find this picture particularly galling because that was one of the undredged parts of the river that had a natural undercut. But the deer have waded in there to browse off the ivy, and at the same time, they're trashing the banks and removing one of those undercuts that are so important for fish to take shelter. This was a main spawning riffle created in about 2004. Again, huge amount of fine sediment inputs. 
smothering the gravels. There's bright, clean gravels under there, and notice there's no live vegetation on the bank. This is how it used to look about 10 years ago. You can go to RSPB Farmer and see numerous brown trout lining up on the bright, clean, golden gravels. They're all put in by volunteers, and there was a very good population. That population in recent years is suffering. It's suffering also due to this lack of spring flow. The river's not able to cleanse itself so well now. So we've got all these problems compounding. Massive amount of bank erosion there. Several tons of fine sediment gone into the river, smothering that. But brown trout are survivors. Give them an opportunity and they find it. They've pushed further upstream, found a small area of gravel to spawn on. That is a small red, but there'll be some eggs developing in there. So hopefully they will emerge. But trouble ahead, another crossing point. I'll take you to the Hoffer Brook now that lies between Foxton and Harston. These are fallow deer wandering through the countryside, eating whatever they can as they go, eating all the bramble, which is really important for songbirds, warblers nesting low down, wading out into the stream to try and eat the ivy, nibbling off the low branch that pollard willow, crashing the banks as they try and climb up it, crossing in multiple areas. Keep your eye on that small patch of irises to the top left of the picture. Here we've got muntjac creeping along the banks, nibbling off small saplings, getting to places where the fallow deer can't get to. But I said before, the brown trout are survivors. Give them an opportunity, <coughs> they will take it. Again, they found a small area of gravel to spawn on, and that's another small red graded there. So these species are just about trying to hold on to our chalk streams, but they're becoming very, very pressured. I want to talk about dogs now. Trust me, I'm a dog lover. This was my late dog. She loved fish as well. This is Byron's Pool, local nature reserve. Look at the extensive erosion here. This is gabing cages, which should be hidden under the bank. Massive amount of erosion, massive amount of erosion up there. The channel's massively over wide from that earlier phase of the fish pass. Cambridge City Council took me on as an expert advisor. We had a vision to create a naturalistic winding stream here. But we had to overcome the dogs eroding the banks, which is also magnified or exacerbated when you have signal crayfish digging holes into the bank. It makes them like honeycomb. The dogs are just pulling themselves up and the banks crumble. We employed five rivers and they delivered around 200 tonnes of gravel, built up that channel, made it more sinuous and made it into a fast flowing stream again. We had to strengthen some of the banks near the bridge footings. We couldn't allow the bridge to crumble. And we tried to provide stronger edges and we bent over some trees to hinge them, to control where dogs and people. We were actually fighting the public's desire to come in and enjoy and get close to that stream. Last year was the hottest year we'd had for many years. People wanted to be connected to their rivers. We weren't going to stop them coming to that part of the river. So the city council had to take a judgment call and they went for these low discrete signs. And actually, they worked. When people knew what it was all about, they started to pull back. We've got a nice, good trout habitat there, potential for trout to spawn nets. Over wide parts of the channel were made more sinuous. We used volunteers to protect the banks. That wasn't strong enough, so we put in brash to control where dogs would go. The dog walkers took them out, moved them around. We made it even stronger. And actually, I'm really pleased with how that last one looks. We've got a nice naturalistic stream again at Byron's Pool. We've got a meandering stream. I'll move from the granter towards the end. More dog erosion. Just to say I don't want to disconnect people from rivers. Where you have footpath crossings, 
you will never stop people enjoying a stream. So there are times when we want to make the rivers more resilient. We don't want to stop people using them. So here we regraded the bank. We built a nice, strong beach-like feature at the edge so that people get down to the river cleanly and safely. Again, I want people to enjoy streams. So the River Mel, waterfall conservation is important there. Some areas left to scrub up to keep the dogs off. Over the decade, that's resulted in large tunnels of dark habitat, not good for water voles. So they put discrete fencing up, and that's been respected. The challenge here at the dog dip, we have no star wort in the stream anymore. The dog swimming action has pulled up all of that star wort. <laughs> Weed is really important to hold the levels in the summertime. It's trying to get that balance. This is a restored part of the mill. Much of it can look like that again when I get active later this summer. So, to round up, droughts are not natural around here. If they were natural, we wouldn't have these glacial relics, Cronova alpina, which was present in Ninewells Springs up until the drought of 76. It's still meant to be present in Ashwell Springs at the top of the River Ree. Yes, we've always had some deer around, but there's estimated to be 2 million deer in the countryside, possibly the largest wild herd in the last thousand years. And deer seem to like crossing on the shallow trout want to spawn. Dogs have always swum in rivers. It's just the sheer numbers of dogs. There's estimated to be 13 million dogs in the country now, almost double on what it was 10 years ago. The problem is this traditional lamprey spawning site that I knew in the River Shep has been jumped on repeatedly for the last decade, and I think they've moved off to somewhere. So they do have stresses. If I can just end with the good news. All's not lost. If we can bring back the good water quality, the stability of flow and habitat, like this created spawning ripple on the lower river Shep, where it has connectivity to the River Ree, we can see fantastic large adult wild trout that have been living in that river for many years, spawning and taking forward their progeny to help sustain that population in the river for future generations. And it's things like this that the public don't often get to see. This I find quite amazing in, in Cambridge's streams, but they're out there to be found. Two very large adult fish, the males are the red ones, the females hang around at the back, she's the biggest. They were nearly half a metre long. There's actually a smaller male there that doesn't get a look in. It's sites like that that should be seen in every Cambridgeshire parish where we have clean, healthy chalk streams. Thank you, Ash, for giving me a little bit yeah, more time. Well done. Thank you, Rob, for your passionate of the other very interesting. So David Holroyd is up next. Uh, he's a lifelong angler, currently leading Wiltshire Fisheries Association's campaign to improve water quality of the Hampshire Avon catchment, uh, using a team of volunteers looking at water quality and applying pressure on Wessex Water and the Environment Agency. Sound familiar? Loads of groups doing this, springing up to fill that void, make something happen. Uh, also, in respect to farming communities through the intelligent use of invertebrate monitoring. Good afternoon. It's a real privilege for me to be here. It really is. Up until fairly recently, I was a chartered surveyor with particular skills and things and dealing with listed buildings. And I was just coming to the end of a really good end of my career, 12 years at Rock Tony Gardens Q, looking after the state there, what's three listed buildings. I got this prospect of Being able to, you know, being a lifelong fisherman, get the rods out, 
get out some bubbling chalk streams and get some nice big trout. But it wasn't really, it wasn't long before I could see there was a problem and that things needed to be uh, addressed there. But the other thing about why such a privilege, we're standing here in the David Attenborough building. While I was at Cure, I was quite privileged to meet David a number of times. One of the major projects I finished was a £40 million refurbishment of the Tempera House at Cure. That whole building was being rethemed into the importance of climate change and biodiversity and the threats on the planet. And David always lives very close to Kew, was always part of working a visitor. And I had a conversation with him before I left Kew. I was explaining what I was doing. And David was always a real gentry. He's a really inspirational person. He really does listen to everything he got to say. And I told him all about chalk streams. And he didn't know that about it. He's always international. I explained what was happening with his team. And then very shortly after that, as I said, it looks like I'm going to get absorbed into some kind of campaign. And you can be some advice to You've seen all these campaigns. You've seen where it's gone. Because how do we do it? And he said, two simple messages. One, stick to it because it'll take you a bloody long time. The other thing is you will not get any movement on the politicians until you've got the public fighting at their angles. And it's those two thoughts that I now keep in mind. What I want to do here today is really get three messages across. One is what the situation is that we're brought into. The other one is why the Avon is important. And then the final message is what we're actually doing about it. Um, the current situation we walked into was there was a major decline in vertebrate life, lots of data in terms of real flight partnership. And I don't know if you're aware, but there was, in fact, a, uh, another citizen science project undertaken by Ken Spocklock, who had actually counted the numbers of flies on car window screens over a period of years. Brilliant piece of data that between 2002, sorry, 2004 and 2022, <coughs> there had been a 64% reduction in the number of invertebrates. And we were starting to see that general trend. But on the Avon, we'd seen a massive drop in terms of the vertebrate life. Massive drop, particularly from 2015. What was happening? Quite a number of things in terms of what it is. We had to try and find out what that was about. So that's where the challenge started to rise. We started to put the team together and start to put the data. But let me deal with why the Avon is important. First of all, it's one of the major choke streams. As we turn to them, we talk about the test each of the Avon, the principle of big water systems. It's triple SI. It's a special area of conservation. It's a unique habitat. It has more different indigenous species of fish than in one single river than anywhere else in the UK. It has a quite a significant population, as we've heard this morning, of salmon and sea trout, and they're running significant numbers. It's also described as the people's river. There's quite a lot of towns and communities, and unlike, I would argue, the test of the Inchins, which have got big commercial operations around what they're doing in terms of the fishing, which often makes access difficult, you don't have that to the same degree on the end. It's much more cost fishing oriented to lower down, it's much more accessible. But one of the key things to kind of think about is if we've got such an important river like that, 
If we can't look after that, which is so significant in terms of its diversity and its access, what chance do we have of saving anywhere else? If this isn't important, well, then what hope is there? You know, quite clearly, status as a triple SR in special areas conservation, from where I'm standing, doesn't having any significance whatsoever. So let's start to look at what the problem was when we try to analyze that. We've got lots and lots of data. I mean, the key thing that was important here is that we have over 30 sites in the Smart Rivers program to build up with wild fish. So we're starting to get the data. We've had over 10 years worth of river fly partnership data. But the problem was this decline. You know, the aim was very high up in the league table of water quality. But most of it's dropped down from moderate to being good. And in some areas, particularly in the parts of the Nada and the parts of the Wiley, now going down those back poor. And this is this is a say alarming given that it's the triple SI. The water framework group was clearly not giving it the protection that it needed in terms of that, because the signature of the water framework agreement was to bring all of those standards up. This just was not happening. So we had to start looking at what we were doing and starting to put our case together. One of the other things that we came across in particular of the problem was also finding that when we approached the Environment Agency, they've got no resources, they had no data. We were giving them the data that they had just was, you know, they were unaware of it. We were able to point to them hotspots and problems. They were unaware. And what was even worse into some of the cases, we were reporting incidents as a consequence of our road flight partnership work. And we ended up arguing on the riverbank whether, whether there was a problem on it. We have some areas of the agent where I get sample vertebrate samples in their thousands, five miles upstream somewhere. And I've got them in their tens of individual species. And I've got somebody there in the environment agent saying, well, I've got one of every species. There isn't a problem. It, this battlefield had to disappear. We've got a fairly organized water company in terms of Wessex Water, it's highly organized, it has much more resources. It has much more of an ER arm and it has skilled, highly motivated, intelligent resources. Unfortunately, the environment agency appears so weak, so we had to start to fill that gap. So part of this was looking at where the decline was done. And this is where I come down to the terms of where smart rivers were useful. Yes, we had this background of the problem and the river partnership work we're doing, but we could see that the biodiversity was actually declining. The thing about smart rivers is it starts to give you that intelligent data. It starts to tell you where some of these problems are. It also, because of the depth of the quality of the information, you then start to see this trend. And because we've got five years plus of data now, this trying to trend analysis being quite clear. One thing, absolutely, taking the Smart Rivers data brought the Environment Agency to the table. Then we could start working. We wanted to move away from an adversarial kind of relationship. We wanted them to be able to the data to be able to use it. We have a small group working on this particular thing. It was not long before we started to realize that where we could add the most value was not necessarily pursuing as a campaigner, as a champion on some white horse, was just purely and simply to get people to sit around the table and get to the same problem 
agree what the problem is, put the resources that they've got, and agree a common goal and get on with it. That we still see as being the biggest challenge, and I'll come on to that later. But I, first of all, I'll go back down to what is the actual problem. So, as a consequence, we've lost a lot of the diversity in terms of species like blueing olive are absolutely plummeted. Where we used to see them in clouds, nobody's seen an iron blue done for years. There are some species that are unique with the water bottles on the tail, where it's one of the three sites in the UK we think has become extinct. That's purely been sent to an uncontrolled uh, a breach in association. So as well as that, in terms of loss of diversity, we have to try and think about a way and hotspot we were to do it. And that's very much the phrase that we use, is it trying to use smart rivers to tell us where those hotspots are. Because part of the problem where we get the environment agency, you know, we say, well, it's sewage treatment works and it's agriculture and it's too hard, it's too difficult, we don't know what to do. Oh, dear. And of course, <laughs> we're then kind of saying, well, look, come on, look at the data that we've got. This is pointing to where the hotspots are. Why is it happening at that particular point? And it doesn't say rocket science to start when you plot out, you know, the invertebrate, the trends, and you start to see, oh, they just happen to be from outfalls. So they seem to be just the outfalls from the crest farm. You know, oh, there's a problematic dairy farm. You start to be able to pinpoint these kind of things. But the other thing benefits about smart rivers is it comes particular in obviously it points to where the result from. So you can start to look at that and understand where those and these are the dots that we get are the actual sites on the Avon and its tributaries where we can actually see it. So we can see where we need to get attention. So we can start to focus on it. You know, one of these phrases of how do you best work an elephant? You chop it into bits. You know, that's that's the way you've got to deal with it. Similarly, with chemical pressure, we're starting to look at where the sources of chemical problems are. The pressure that we've been able to put in the Environment Agency, they've now been able to obtain funding. But we've now got chemical analysis being undertaken by them. It's a program of that for the next two years. And that will, again, help us pinpoint where we need to be. Because at the end of the day, collecting data is one thing. And you've got to use it to actually produce an output at the other end. And that output has to be to start to cut down some of these sources. And that's what we're trying to do, trying to focus that down. We know these where the sources are, agriculture, sewage. We've also got a large number of sewage treatment, septic tanks in the area, and we're going to try and pull that kind of together. We're working well with Wessex Water in terms of this collaborative kind of approach. But the other factor we've got in terms of coming here part of the problem is there are 7,000 individuals came from Germany into the Salisbury Plain. That actually we all integrated into a stream. Nobody thought about the ecological impact of that. So this has to be one of the things that we're going to do. So we cannot do this without getting to the right stand. What I've done in a period of time, we've been doing this for since like two years. I've run programs for most of the farming communities, done workshop with them. I presented to school children. We do our best to work with all the local interest groups. Like I said, the big thing is to get people around the same table because they're all trying to change the same thing. But the biggest gap is the lack of joined up thinking. 
And what are we doing now? We're working very closely with Wildfish and the charities and organisations, and we're starting to now build a PR campaign. We're trying to get the message across to local campaigners and um, politicians, which is because of the key route. We have regular meetings with the environment to see in Wessex Water, and we're now trying to develop local implementation plans. Thank you very much. Okay, can the speakers come back up, please, to take the questions down? It's kind of a question for all four of which everybody kind of touched on to a degree, is the fact that flow is the master variable. And in the news over the last year, two years, we've obviously seen uh, a lot of media attention afforded to water quality. But if you actually look at the bare bones and kind of take it all back on water quality and the work that was done uh, on that, I mean, it's number-based and it's not necessarily very sexy and sewage isn't sexy at all. Uh, and then transfer that over to a water quantity, another very dry subject, very number-based. Water resource management plans are exceedingly boring. How can we, and those that have driven the water quality agenda so brilliantly, and got it into the media so well and managed to keep it there for such a long time. How can we do the same for water quantity? Bear in mind, in my opinion, water quantity will outweighs water quality in terms of its impact on, let's make it, bring it all the way back to what we're meant to be talking about, which is short streams. You know, what can young campaigners, lobbyists do to bring that up to the agenda, but also get that into the front pages of the papers? That's it. It is entering there now, 2023. But what can we do? Come back on kind of a half answer to that. To get the focus, it has to almost hit rock bottom. And that's what's happening here in the Cambridge area now. We're getting to the situation where even the average member of the public can look at the rivers that they once knew and see them as a shadow of what they once were. I don't know how we put the right amount of pressure onto the water companies to get them to reduce some of the abstraction. Their water management plans say what they'll do, but it's not for the environment agency to tell them to implement them. Somehow they have to change their hearts and their minds and realise that they've got to reduce their abstraction earlier. The Cam Valley Forum recently put it to the Cambridge Water Company that they should be introducing temporary use bans before the need becomes imminent it takes something like eight weeks for them to lawfully bring in a hosepipe ban, let's call it. But you can't conserve that water once it's gone. And the public need to know that. The public need to be putting the pressure on. And that is happening around the Cambridge area. But you know, the plans for the reservoir are 2040 before it comes operational. So there's a long, long time for us to try and creep through and try and save some of these, these special species. Anyone else want to pick that up? I don't disagree with you, but you do need the flows, the water quality and the habitat together. We've seen an example in the chest of high flows causing an issue with groundwater ingress into. That's not an isolated issue. That is an issue around much of you know, a large proportion of the network. So we actually have to think of these things and work on them <coughs> together um, and not get perhaps compartmentalised in the way that we're doing things to work on river health. It's important. Yeah, I think the, the the important thing is that is bringing the two together. The one thing that has been fairly new to this situation, the one thing that's just sort of screaming out at me is a the lack of joined up thinking, and the lack of any kind of overarching 
mechanism, whether it comes from some political will or whether it comes from some other groundswell. There was nothing kind of pulling, pulling it together. That, I think, is the challenge that we've all got, is how do we create that? I throw in the messaging. The messaging is simple. Water companies are wasting billions and billions of litres of water every day because that's how they make money, by not fixing stuff. It's the same message. Stop the profiteering. Your rivers are being stolen from you, the bill payer. Keep it simple. And it is really, yeah, we need more water, more dilution, less pollution. Yeah. Are there any smaller scale things that can be done in the meantime while we're waiting for the 2040s and 2050s, like small agricultural reservoirs, the southern water magic bin with heart that goes off, all that sort of thing? Um, I would say, yes, there are. That's where I think Smart Rivers helps because it gets you on hot spots. If you don't, one of the biggest problems I get from a lot of critics in, in, in terms of work coming from through from the clubs, you can't boil the ocean. You know, you've got to start chopping this up into individual schemes and and and, do, and clear them, close them off. The more that you can involve people in each individual project, but have to be better that it will be. So why does the message? You've just got to look, group, focus it, do it, complete it. Don't let them blame the customer for everything. I've seen water company chief executives do this. I've made my children take a minute less in the shower. Well done. But what have you done about the billions of pounds that you have looted of water you're wasting? And are you still taking a massive bonus? We just keep your eye on the target. They love to just push you over to wet wipes. Mm -hmm. You're in too long. Shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. No, no. That's not how it works. I agree with all that. Keep the pressure on to highlight the negatives. But actually, where you get something working, where you get some positive change, whether it be a, whether it be a landowner or even you know regulatory or whatever, that's where you shine the spotlight to show others that you can actually do positive things. Picking up on that positive messaging, that people will actually use that to actually, particularly in the farming world. Most farmers, if they see somebody else doing something next door, they what are they doing? How do they get the money for that? You know, it's that sort of process. I had the sort of thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't suggesting I hasten to add taking the pressure off at all. <laughs> One thing that we're trying to achieve along the River Granta is better floodplain connection. The Granta is unusual and it's actually a flashy chalk stream. It has a clay ridge at the top of it and that can discharge water relatively quickly. We're trying to undertake areas where we can allow the river to flood so that water sits on the land and it infiltrates. It's quite complex. Not all of the, that valley is chalky, so not all of it is actually an infiltration zone. But one of some of the work I took with the Baben Research Campus, I um, reconnected the river to its woodland floodplain where no one is concerned if that area floods. And that is actually acting as a sink. We can't measure how effective it is, but surely slowing the flow, getting that water out onto land, letting that water sink into the chalky parts of the catchment has got to bring a benefit. I think it's um, a really critical time, I think because of lockdown, because people got out into the natural environment, because we're starting to recognise the mental uh, health benefits of being out in natural environments and observing nature, that observation is really important. You're seeing a massive groundswell of people wanting to get involved with uh, looking after their rivers. When we put out a call for people on the chess, we've had, you know, we've got over 50 people now in a year working with us as citizen scientists, for example. 
but really important that you prioritize the activities and every river is different it has a different set a different suite of issues and finding out why which issues are the most important the critical ones to address first and so um there is a role for science in that we don't want to be just collecting data forever but there is a role for citizen scientists to get out there to help um and and also see the benefit themselves i think just as a quick follow-up is there a system whereby if you find something that works, it's publicised so that other people can use it. So the best route, the best route I can suggest you look at is the catchment-based approach. The catchment partnership pages is, is probably the most complicated. There will be gaps. There will be things that don't get on there, but that's probably mm -hmm. one that I would say is the most complete one-stop shop to get information on what people have been up to at rivers on river catchments. There's the CASTCO initiative <laughs> as well, which is trying to get people working together to look at what toolkits can be used um, across different rivers groups. That's worth looking at. Go Crowley. Um, great speeches, everyone. Great talks. I, um, it's a slightly niche question, but Kate, you said uh, there are about 200 chemicals that you're so well set up on the chest and you're going to be looking at you know different sort of influences i wonder if neonics are part of that and maybe even uh, neonicotinoids are part of that and you know given the change in legislation whether that's i don't know if anyone is here from bug life but i know that's certainly a big concern in terms of invertebrates i don't know if that's on your radar and also dog flea treatments to go sort of onto what rob was saying whether dogs should be going in rivers at all really or whether we should just have separate sort of ponds and uh, areas for them so um, on the dog food treatment, we're seeing we're, the presence and absence stuff, the passive samplers are picking up not just concentrations, but presence and absence. Yes, we're seeing presence. Some of the latest scientific data is suggesting it's not coming from the dogs swimming in the river, it's coming from our homes. So, it, you know, it's, it's the flea treatment that's being transferred around onto your soft furnishing and then being moved out through the, the river system and through the sewage treatment works. So um, that's something to think about rather than campaigning for people not letting their dogs in the river. It's more uh, from the perspective of the flea treatment. We really do need to be thinking about what we use around our homes, what our sewage treatment works are actually capable of removing, what they'll be capable of removing with tertiary treatment, because it's not a, a, you know, a cheap thing to tune every sewage treatment works to a suite of chemicals. It's not what we can do within the current budgets that we have. So we've got to think really carefully about that issue. Neonicotinoids, not in the emerging, not in that suite of 200, but I think in that wider database that you can now search for. There are really great scientific methods coming through where you can search for thousands of chemicals in one go with a small bottle of water. Um, and that's we're doing this working with Imperial College London. I think the other thing as well is we've got to step back and actually look at what the situation is in terms of doing this degree of chemicals. Just go back to 1980s. Just think about how many chemicals you brought home from the supermarket in comparison to what you bring back now. How many showers? I would, you know, in the 1970s, I used to have one bath a week. <laughs> so that's all we could do. We have a shower at least once or twice a day. So we've got to bear in mind that the kind of changes that are taken happening. And I would say in that, knowing there's been very little investment into the, into the sewage infrastructure and the infrastructure since that time. And it's a massive growth. One more question, yes. Yeah, um, I totally get it about the need to keep putting pressure on water companies and um, government and EA to come and uh, activate its responsibility. But also, surely behind all this, we've all got to change our behaviour quite substantially. It's not enough. It's not enough just to say, well, we can manage this and it will be okay. 
we have to really change. I'm very interested to hear what all four of you might have to say about how behaviour change, big behaviour change among the public might happen, might work. It's, it's the private swimming pools. These monster paddling pools are now popping up in people's back gardens. Paddling pools for dogs, because it's too hot for them in the summer. Our water use is going sky high. People, the average Joe, doesn't realise what's happening in terms of their water usage and how unsustainable it is. I would ban the monster paddling pools. Can I just say, we run international programmes at Pembroke College. They're great value, but we get many more people buying them when they raise the costs. So people, if, if something is expensive, people prize it more. Yeah. Water's cheap. Water's too yeah. cheap to fill your monster paddling pool. Yeah, I, think, I think we've got to wrap it up there. <laughs> Next year, we want to see much more uh, people a lot more scratching going on there. Basically, it's been pointed out that if we can't come up with a closing statement tomorrow, we would be letting ourselves down and the spirit of the conversations we've had today. So can I ask you to think, for you to suggest points that you would like to go into that closing statement? We have writers on us. We will try to draft something in the course of the day. Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast, one in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.